long form journalism basically takes the standard who, what, when, where, how, why and expands it into a compelling narrative. And you can do that through writing, through um, radio, TV. I think that's the most exciting thing about long form journalism is you get to fill it with colour and experience and senses and emotion and tension. And yeah, it's fantastic. It's my favourite kind of journalism. Hello and welcome to the Writer's Hour. I'm your host, Adam Burnett, and with me is our producer, Sam Ferris. Hello, Sammy. G'day, AB. And this week we are speaking with freelance journalist Stephanie Gardner. Now, Steph has previously worked at the Sydney Morning Herald. She's currently based in Orange in country New South Wales, not far from where she also teaches a subject on long-form journalism at Charles Sturt University in Bathurst, which is somewhere you know very well, Sam. That's right, AB. As an old CSU graduate myself, it was great hearing from Steph. I found it really interesting about how Steph manages the messages she gives her students so they don't lose hope and their ambition to be part of the industry in what is a really tough time. And the two pieces that you guys chat about are well worth a read, but I'll let you explain what those are and where you can find them. Yes, we dive into two pieces this week, as you say, Sam. They were selected by Steph because they're both stories she works through with her students. One is a story about the outback New South Wales town of Ivanhoe, which ran on the ABC website and was written by two of her former colleagues. And the other is by the legendary Helen Garner, who is a bit of an idol of Steph's and whose piece titled Why She Broke won a Walkley in 2017. Both are Australian pieces, which you can find in our show notes and on Twitter. And speaking of Twitter. That's right. Follow us there at the Writer's Hour. And while you're in there, checking out those episode notes, rate, review, and subscribe to the Writer's Hour wherever you get your podcasts from. So it's a big thank you to Steph Gardner and it's over to her now. Hey, Steph, thanks for coming on the Writer's Hour. Thank you so much for having me. It's very exciting. Oh, you're very welcome. Well, we wanted to talk to you in this crazy pandemic world as a... uh, teacher of some of our budding journalism students, how things are being managed at the moment, I, I guess we could start with in this, uh, yeah, as I say, this, this COVID climate. How, how are you coping and how are your students coping? My students are coping really well. They're so resilient and um, creative and um, clever. So that's really good. But yes, uh, we had about three or four weeks, I think, of face-to-face lessons before the pandemic forced everyone off campus. Um, And so since then, it's all been meeting on Zoom and chatting about writing and reading and all of that sort of stuff via Zoom, which kind of loses some of its magic, but um, (laughs) it's it's really, you know, we're all safe and sound and um, they're still studying. So that's, that's all good. I guess it's kind of reflective of the broader uh, media industry at the moment. We've all been reduced to our houses and isolated and um, yeah, these, these uh, students are kind of getting a feel for, for what it's like in the real world at the moment in a sense, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I teach long-form journalism, so I'm often, often um, encouraging them to watch things like 730 and just to see how 7.30 has changed its operations and I guess the quality of its vision and interviews and things has really changed because you have to interview people via Zoom. So I've sort of been encouraging them to take comfort in that. You know, if Lee Sales can do it, it's you happening, can. <laughs> happening to the best of us. Yeah. <laughs> Part of the reason I wanted to chat to you was because you're taking that long-form subject, which I'm definitely passionate about and um, hopefully some of our listeners are too. 
And I was just surprised to learn that it was a subject in Australian journalism at universities and stuff. I, I never got to do the long form course, but that's a, a very cool. I, I know there's, um, you know, testing roads ahead with all universities and budget cuts and all that sort of stuff at the moment. But um, can you take us into what a long form course looks like? Yeah, so I... Or subject, I should say. Yeah, so I actually studied a version of this when I was at CSU in Bathurst. It was called Newspaper and Magazine Production, I think then. So now um, it's called Long Form Journalism uh, Beyond News. So it's basically pretty self-explanatory. It's talking about how long form journalism basically takes the standard who, what, when, where, how, why and expands it into a compelling narrative. And you can do that through writing, through um, radio, TV. And it's basically, I think when I've been teaching it, it's all about trying to get students to really open their eyes and think bigger picture and also use some of their creative talents as well. I think that's the most exciting thing about long-form journalism is you get to fill it with colour and experience and senses and emotion and tension and, yeah, it's fantastic. It's my favourite kind of journalism. You sort of mentioned getting the kids to open their eyes and and view the bigger picture there. I think um, we're going to talk later about one of the stories that a couple of your ABC colleagues wrote and I, I felt like that was it's a really good example for the way these students can get themselves into the industry um, and and tell stories that you know matter to them but are also you know almost happening next door to them um, yeah so it, it's a realistic shot at you know hang on I can do this as well but in in terms of um, where you uh, come from Steph tell us a little bit about your background and, and how you uh, ended up in this journalism world So I've been writing for as long as I can remember. Um, I remember in about year five or six, I won an award for a story I wrote called Where the Big Boys Play. And it was about going to the beach with my grandma. And um, I'm only telling this story because um, I still sometimes get little royalty checks from that story. It's in some sort of educational booklet. So um, I... So you're a professional from grade five. That's right. Yep. (laughs) So I just kind of knew really early on that that's what I wanted to do and what I like to do. And that continued all the way through school. Um, Like lots of journalists, I had a fantastic English teacher in year 12 who really opened my eyes and made me think about lots of things in different ways and um, was the first adult I think who treated me like an adult and made me realize that my ideas were worth something and that there were kind of no wrong answers in reading and writing and so that then sent me to after I finished school I went to CSU in Bathurst um, and I studied journalism focusing really on print journalism while I was there I edited the student newspaper which was so much fun lots of sleepless nights and um, really like now I think some extremely questionable content, but that's fine. <laughs> um, and my first job out of uni was um, as an editorial assistant at Australian Associated Press in Sydney. That was fantastic because I was basically like the newsroom's admin assistant with a couple of little editorial jobs here and there. And that was great because I could watch other people 
make mistakes and um, learn from other people's mistakes without having to make them myself. Then I did a year um, as a cadet at AAP, which it was just the best training ground. They, um, it was a great mix of they trained you really well and you got experience on every single desk, but they would also throw you in the deep end sometimes, like just because you were 20 or 21 and you'd only been working for a year didn't mean that you couldn't go out and do a big press conference or a big breaking news story. That was fantastic. After a few years there, I quit to go backpacking for six months And then when I came back, I started working at the Sydney Morning Herald and most of my time there was spent covering the court round, which is just, I think it's the best round. It was the best job and I loved it so much. It's so addictive and multifaceted and interesting and exciting and stressful. It's just the perfect <laughs> job, I think. Do the courts, <laughs> does the court round, does it let you, uh, I imagine there'd be some fascinating stories. Does it give you a chance to pause the breath and explore some of those a, a little deeper or was it just uh, bang, bang, bang? So it's very fast paced. Um, but if you were covering a trial day by day, um, there was often enough time where you could kind of put together a longer piece about the case for a weekend um, edition. Okay. And that was always one of my favourite things to do. And sometimes courts are just horribly boring and slow and so you can take the opportunity to kind of wander around and just look in different courtrooms and see what's happening and that's how you kind of uncover treasure in courtrooms. It's <laughs> Yeah, it's great. I imagine that would take some getting used to. Uh, it would be a daunting place uh, on day one. It is daunting. I was really scared, I think, probably for a year because there's so much at stake and mm. you just never want to do anything that derails a trial or makes life more difficult for people who already have very hard jobs and judges are obviously they can be terrifying. <laughs> Luckily, I don't think I ever, yeah, I don't, I never sort of got into trouble with a judge or anything, but yeah, it's a very kind of daunting experience. But once you get a handle on it, you realize what you can and can't write and say and do. It's really fun, actually, and very, every day is different. And it was just fantastic. I loved it. Work at the moment, what does it look like for you? I mean, as as I think we've all seen, newsrooms have been shutting all over the place in the last 18 months. It, it must be um, difficult for students to, to keep an optimistic mindset, but uh, it must be difficult for uh, teachers to convey that as well, especially when, um, you know, your own professional life, there's, you've got different things going on as well. Um, can you tell us a little bit about where you're at with work at the moment? Yeah, so I left the Herald at the beginning of 2018 um, and I moved to Orange mostly because Sydney house prices were just horrendous and I have two little daughters. So we moved to Orange and I worked at the ABC here for a little while and in the last six months or so I went freelance and picked up um, a bit of teaching work. How do I convey it to my students I actually haven't really broached the topic of newsroom closures and things with my students too much because I think, I just don't think that it's worth kind of like extinguishing their fire before they've even gotten started. Um, And I think if any of them did ask me about it, I would say 
just remain hopeful. Um, around about the time when I graduated, newsrooms were shedding staff, um, places were closing down, there were lots of sort of risky parts of the journalism industry and, I mean, I, it didn't sort of turn out to be any better but there were jobs and there were opportunities and I think all of these students that I teach have a million different skills um, and will find their place somewhere. So that's what I would say to them if they asked. I think that's very good advice. And um, I wanted to, uh, how about we head into this ABC story that two of your friends wrote? Yeah. Um, it's called Living in a Dying Town, the Outback Community that Refuses to Quit. It's about the outback town of Ivanhoe uh, and it's told through the eyes of five of its inhabitants who stay on in the town despite the fact that I, I guess in to not put it too crudely, the, the town is, is virtually dying around them. Now, can you tell us a little bit about, I guess, why you chose that story for, for your students to, uh, as, as a good example of, of a long-form piece? So I chose it for a few reasons. Number one was that um, Michaela Hambrett and Don Scheel, who wrote it, wrote it as part of a really amazing program that the ABC run called the Remote Communities um, program and basically it allows regional journalists to go out to really remote communities and stay there for two weeks and the idea is that they just find stories um so it's kind of it's so cool I didn't get to do it myself while I worked at the ABC but I just always admired that program because it's kind of um an antidote to the really fast news cycle it's Mm -hmm. kind of you know you get two weeks to just kind of immerse yourself in a town and find a story. um, Your colleagues, Michaela and Don, Don, were they um, from the city or are they from country towns or? Michaela, yeah, had moved from Sydney and Don, Uh I think, was from Melbourne. So, yeah. So it would have been a a bit of an eye-opener for them. Yeah, yeah. So that that was one reason I chose it. And this was kind of a story, we discussed it in the context of immersion. So long form journalism really requires you to spend some time in the world that you're writing about. And it's clear from this story that Michaela and Don, as I mentioned before, they had their eyes open the whole time. They were looking out for interesting characters. They were taking in the landscape. There's just amazing little details all through that story about what life is like in this kind of outback, middle of nowhere town where not much is going on. Um, And it also kind of tries to answer the question of why do people still live in these towns? Mm -hmm. And the structure is also very simple and Mm -hmm. effective. And I just thought this is, yeah, um, something that's really accessible to young journalists. Yeah, I think that's a good point. It, it does seem really accessible, and I mean, it's not a not a ten thousand word epic or anything, but it's seventeen hundred words, and it's it's broken up into five subheadings, which are the characters in the story. So you've got the postmaster, the shopkeeper, the flying doctor, the grazier's wife, the administrator. As you say, they they kind of share some really important and telling little details about this town. But there's a sense of hope and a sense of um, maybe not acceptance, but just a a sense of resoluteness amongst these characters that, hey, this is this is our life and, you know, it, it might be difficult for some people to understand, but um, it came across that they were ultimately five fairly happy individuals. Yeah, and I think um, 
just in its really simple um, and quite elegant way, this story just shows how important home is to people and people's connection to their communities and their family. Like I think probably my favourite character in this story is the shopkeeper Mm. who um, is described as kind of sitting on her bar stool behind the counter, surrounded by meat pies and um, like belts of batteries. And she talks about how she finished high school on the Friday and started working in the shop on Monday and she's just never left and has Mm. no desire to leave. And I just think it kind of has a great kind of almost like a a rubbernecking element to it, as in I can't imagine people who read this and live in a city or an urban area could kind of believe what they were reading and seeing. Mm, mm. Um, Yeah, I certainly got that sense in a couple of instances (laughs) where it says, uh, in a town where a sealed road is a recent luxury, the addition of white lines to the Cobb Highway outside her shop has her beaming. This is the shopkeeper that you were talking about. And she says, um, they've done a really good job at brightening the whole town up. It's a credit to them. She says of the road workers who applied the paint. If they get the other road going, that might bring a few around. They say it will, but I don't know. You've just got to wait and see, I suppose. And then you you move. Uh, the story moves later into um, the Grosje's wife as well. Who She's 31 weeks into a high-risk pregnancy. She has a 10-hour round trip to see a doctor each week. But she's she's not going anywhere. She she just says um, of potential medical emergencies. She says you just face them when they come. It's always in the back of your mind, but it doesn't stop me living here. And you think that would stop me living there? <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, and I was thinking about just recently. The Herald has published um, a series about problems in rural and regional hospitals and. Obviously, that's a really important news story about the disparity between city and country people. Mm. But I think sometimes when metro media look at what's happening in country towns, the thing that they fail to kind of convey is that, yes, all of these things are happening in regional areas, like perhaps problems with the health service, perhaps water shortages, the drought, essential services closing. But to people who have had generations of family living there, there's just a hugely deep and profound connection to those places that those kinds of things, while they matter, um, it's not enough to take people out of these places. It's really... Yeah, it's, it's all they know and they're kind of happy to accept life as it is. Yeah. And um, I, they come around back to the shopkeeper to finish a piece where she says, um, I'm happy here, I love it. Mum and dad and nan and pop are all out at the cemetery. I'll probably end up out there with them. And it's it kind of, uh, it's a beautiful way to finish and it, it just really yeah. underlines or articulates the, the message in the story, I guess, and what you're talking about with the sense of home as well, you know, yeah. and the importance of it. Yeah. And um, I don't think it can be sort of forgotten that there are a lot of people who just, city life just just does not appeal to them. They, you know, the idea of traffic and commuting and noise and a disconnection from nature just is so so far removed from what they want and what satisfies them. 
What do you think the benefits are? We talk about how um, they've structured this story with the five subheads of each of the five characters. What do you think the simple benefits of a, structuring a story like that are? Um, I think it has a really great effect of um, bringing a reader in to that world. It's almost like um, you are being led around Ivanhoe by the two journalists and being introduced to certain members of the community. And one thing that I speak to my students about is how long-form journalism is sort of a way of making an audience time travellers, taking them to a whole new world. And so I think it's quite effective in that way. Yeah, it is like being introduced to each of these people. But it's also really, I think it kind of helps a reader keep going as well. Mm. So 1,700 words is a lot for some people to get through, but if it's broken up into five sections, you're more likely to keep going, I think. Makes it like a good beginner's guide for for long-form writing or for long-form reading. Yeah, yeah, Mm. reading and writing, I think. Um, I think that was a really effective way of doing it. And when um, I spoke to Michaela, one of the journalists about it, she was saying that the structure was sort of um, informed by almost a chronological the chronology of how their trip in Ivanhoe actually went. So it was sort of like the first person they met. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that was also a really interesting thing for my um, students to hear is that often when you're out on a story, you might have absolutely no idea how it's going to come together, but um, your sources and um, your interviews and the place itself will inspire that and guide that for you. And I think the other thing that you mentioned at the top in terms of being helpful in guiding this story and others was the sense of answering a question. And it feels like that can be a really important driver of a narrative. Yeah. So as I said, I think the question here is why do these people stay? And I'm not sure that, you know, it's like answered really explicitly in this story. I don't think that anyone gives a really firm and convincing answer, but I also don't think that they needed to. So it's kind of, yeah, it drives the narrative and it keeps you reading. And ultimately I think that there's a, there's still a sense of mystery about it, which is wonderful. And, and by the same token, I suppose, there's also a relatability in that um, you've got, you know, your students in Bathurst, Orange, uh, sorry, Ivanhoe in, in Western New South Wales, there, there are all these regional areas. Did, did they respond to it in that way? My students loved this piece. So yeah, they, right. they recently had an assignment where um, they're working towards their own piece of long-form journalism and they had an assignment where they had to write a report about, like, what they'd learnt and how it had inspired them. And every just about every one of them mentioned this piece and I think that's because it is just so accessible. And... Yes, I think they were bolstered, I think, by the fact that this article doesn't go deep into any kind of complicated history. It's not about politics. It's just simply about going and speaking to some people and letting them tell their stories. And that, I think, I think a lot of them were surprised that you could actually do that in journalism. You know, they've had, a very, like a, a couple of years of kind of been 
taught about being objective and fair and accurate and all of that stuff, um, which is obviously extremely important, but there's also this room to just explore other worlds, which I think was really exciting for them. I hope it was really exciting for them. Yeah, and it's a simple concept and it's told simply. And as you say, I guess that makes it really accessible for them. So it makes sense, I guess, that it appealed. Um, I think it's a good one to show them. Uh, I'm a big believer in the idea that everyone has a story to tell and I do feel like um, the two journalists who wrote this piece, they they really nailed that concept here. I mean, as you say, it's not big politics, it's not famous people, it's, it's your everyday citizens. Yeah. And I think if you speak to anyone for long enough, you realise that everybody has a story. Everyone has something amazing that has happened to them that perhaps they don't even think is amazing. Mm. Um, And it's just really worth talking to people. And as I said before, keeping your eyes open and being receptive to just the fact that there are stories everywhere And actually what comes to mind is my next door neighbor is a elderly woman who I chat to sometimes over the fence. And she um, has raised a lot of her great grandchildren. And she has like, I think she says she has like 60 grandchildren of different iterations, you know, different parts of her extended family. And she just doesn't see that as exceptional. She just sort of, that's just how she spent her life. And that's it. And I think, gosh, you know, there are just so many people who don't realise how great their stories are. Your journalist instinct kicks in and you think, yeah. hang on, this would be an unbelievable long form piece. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. I would love to interview Mary next door. <laughs> <laughs> that's terrific. Well, I think um, speaking of unbelievable long form pieces, uh, the other piece we wanted to have a look at, which you've shown your students and um, mm. that it had a had another really uh, interesting and positive reaction <laughs> yes. was a story by um, the renowned author, Helen Garner, which in 2017, uh, it won a Walkley and when it appeared in uh, the monthly and now probably an overly simple description of it. Well, it's a harrowing piece. It, it's about a Sudanese Australian mother who, who drove her car into a lake in a Melbourne suburb with four of her children in the back, killing three of them. And Garner goes back over that initially, that incident or those deaths and then um, traces the history of this Sudanese Australian mother um, via court documents and, and other uh, means. And I could see why it appealed to you as a former court reporter. She certainly utilized her skills in, in the courtroom in that sense as well. But I'll let you dive into this one, Steph. Um, how, how do you present this one to your students and, and what are the aspects of, of this piece that you're trying to get across? So I thought really long and hard before showing them this article because it's obviously very harrowing and some of it is very hard to read. But I I showed them them this article in the first week, which was basically about what is long form. And it is that taking a basic news story and just blowing it up essentially. And I thought that this was the perfect example of of that. Um, and I also thought it was important for my students to see that long-form journalism often does kind of look into dark corners and looks at things that other people may look away from. And Helen Garner is exceptional at doing that. So... We kind of looked at it in terms of, I thought the most 
interesting way into it was the idea that this story opens with the incident, the the woman driving her car and her children into this lake. And it also draws in characters from the get-go. So um, there's, what is it, the chef on the way to get a tattoo there's like a workman who offers his steel-capped boot to kind of help in the rescue effort. Um, Smash open the window of the, yeah. the car. All these yeah. innocent bystanders who suddenly have to spring into action of the incident during the incident. Yeah, that's right. And mm. so my first kind of question to them was, why do you think she does that? And I think there's a few reasons, but the biggest one I think is that It just showed to me that this incident kind of involves every one of us. And when something like this happens, when a shocking crime involving violence, particularly against children, happens, it says something about us all. And I thought that was a really effective way of showing that. Mm. Um, So that was where I sort of started, just kind of the idea that it's expanding upon a bigger new story um, and it's using a narrative it's using characters and why is it doing that it's that extraordinariness amid you know ordinary suburbia as well isn't it I mean the way she has those characters in there at the start it's like these are everyday people and there's just an alarmingly extraordinary incident is taking place a tragic incident I, I guess that sort of juxtaposition of the as I say extraordinary amid the ordinary is pretty effective uh, I had chills, I think, from the first few paragraphs. But, yeah, as, yeah. as you get further into the story, um, uh, one of the key points that you made was that Garner decides as well to involve herself in the piece. Yeah, so Helen Garner often cops a bit of criticism from some circles um, okay. for bringing herself into her stories. A lot of people actually really love that. I'm one of them. I think it's a really effective narrative device. Um, some people don't like that so much, but... For me, I think when she kind of brings it back to herself, so there's a really shocking crime that would be very hard for people to get their heads around, and she brings it back to herself and the experience of other women and other mothers Mm, um, to kind of, I think, ground the audience. So she talks about, like, speaking to her friends Mm. and, you know, remembering times where they were just at the peak of their frustrations in motherhood and Mm. the kind of the smallness of your world when you become a mother. Um, And I think that kind of reflection on herself and the experiences of other women who have not committed this kind of crime Mm. Mm. humanises it a bit. And so what I think I really love about Helen Garner as well is that her court reporting and her writing about crime really tries to erase this kind of idea that people who commit violent crimes are monsters or they're evil. It's so much more nuanced and deeper than that. Um, It's too easy to kind of just um, dismiss people who have committed violent crimes as evil monsters because Mm. actually those people exist among us, you know, yeah. they get up every morning, they brush their teeth, they have their breakfast, they have children, they go to work, they have friends, they play sport. They're kind of walking among us and it's much more more productive exercise to actually look at a full 
context of a crime like this than it is to just kind of dismiss it as like a yeah a anomaly. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, the section that you're talking about, uh, I'll just read it uh, quickly here. She says, um, like several of my women friends, I, I flinched from the story yet followed the media reports out of the corner of my eye. We emailed each other. We texted about women we had known or had been single mothers who slammed the door and ran away or threw a screaming baby across a room or crouched howling with one hand on the phone, too ashamed to call for help. The flashpoint was the glimpse that the chef had caught as she drove past the clumsily parked Toyota. The frantic mother hunched over the steering wheel, going off her head while in the back her children went berserk. How many times have I been there, whispered my neighbour and grandmother. I have to know why she broke. Yeah, it seems incredible that she's able to get to this point where suddenly other mums in her life and, and perhaps reading this story, they're questioning how far the bridge is between themselves and, and this mother who, who is the subject of the story. How has she done that, do you think? Well, I suppose her, um, as Garner explores in this story, and another reason why I thought this was a great example to show students is that you know from the outset what's happened, but Garner still manages to um, build up a sense of tension and kind of there's a great surge in the middle of the story where you learn about Akon Gurude's background that she's been a victim of war crimes she's had terrible trauma she has had a lot of children she's basically the property of the men in her family she has very limited help in Australia there's a really kind of poignant part where the court documents that Ghana's going through kind of reveal that she at one point had thought she might be able to escape and live with a friend in the country town, but she never went through with it. Um, there are all of these kind of little threads of tension and suspense all the way through it, even though you know what's happened. Mm. And I think, you know, it helps also to show that that's the difference between the kind of regular frustrations of motherhood mm-hmm. versus this just enormous amount of pressure that this mother was under yeah right so perhaps that bridge that i talk about it, it is a long bridge <laughs> but the fear of some mums who who know that they've reached boiling point with their kids that makes them think perhaps that the, the separation between them and, and this mother isn't so great um when maybe in some senses it isn't um but yeah the the exploration of this woman's background perhaps goes a, a long way to showing that hang on, there's a bigger story here, there's a there's a bigger picture, and that in turn humanises this mother. Yeah, that's right, and I think that's the, the beautiful thing about this kind of writing. And from my experience as a court reporter, there were very few cases that I covered where I didn't feel some sense of, okay, I would never do something like this, but I can see how given all of these circumstances, this person came to be here. Mm, mm. Um, And it's not so much sympathy. It's just kind of empathy and understanding of like, oh, wow, okay, your life is something that I will never understand Mm, and mm. it's led you here. Yeah, I mean, she she talks about, you know, there was this just numbness that she, she had become so stoic that there was almost no feeling left in, in this mother and sort of halfway point through the story, she says, 
call it what you will, this woman had been reduced to little more than a conduit for babies and for money. And she'd been sending money back to her family um, in, in Sudan. Uh, and she says, uh, is it any, any wonder that she laid her burden down and turned her face to the wall? And then a few pars later, she says, she was exhausted, isolated, mentally ill, polaxed by postnatal depression. She was losing her grip. It's almost like a pause for the reader at, at this section to take that all in before she starts a, a new section, um, begins in the back half of the story. But yeah, as you say, I guess she she's articulated that there are very real reasons that there should be some sympathy or if not sympathy, because obviously it's a horrendous and tragic act that's been committed, but but some level of understanding how, how she got to this point. Yeah. Um, and I think um, at the end of the story, it kind of really draws back into just the idea of motherhood and even the word mother and the accepted role of a mother just brings with it so many connotations and expectations and pressures. And I don't think that Helen Garner is, she obviously is concerned with the suffering of the children as well and is not kind of, stepping back from the fact that this is a crime and it is a terrible thing to have done. But it's just all about stripping away that kind of everything that is linked to the word mother and the role of mother and just bringing it back to the person. You know, here is a person who has had a lifetime of trauma Mm. and struggle and is mentally ill and is... um, under the control of other people in her family and her community. And this is where it ends. Yeah. 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 And I, I guess she, she goes into some detail about the seventh pregnancy, which had happened, I think a year or 18 months earlier. Um, and it had left her with severe postnatal depression. She had almost died during that pregnancy. Yeah. And um, yet she had still to, to virtually save their life, uh, save her life. They had been, trying to get her to have a hysterectomy at the time and yep. if other methods fail that and that's what she was refusing you know even at potentially the expense of her own life and um Garner yeah. just writes it at that point she writes uh, could it be that this woman widowed passed from hand to hand and abandoned overwhelmed by her own fertility estranged from her community and up to her neck in debt was prepared to risk bleeding to death on a hospital gurney rather than consent to the surgical removal of the sole symbol of her worth, the sight of her only dignity and power, her womb. Surely mm. a woman whose life had lost all meaning apart from her motherhood would kill her children only in a fit of madness. And I mean, that's heavy stuff mm. um, yeah. and it paints some pretty powerful images, but yep. I guess that kind of comes back to the crux of, of what you're saying, that she she had come to know her only value as a mother, but she she couldn't really be that. Yeah, and Helen Dunn has just got such a an incredible, just sparse way of writing. She just chooses the right words and mm. they're usually really simple words. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I think before when you were talking about um, the part where she describes the woman as being polaxed by mm. postnatal depression and there's another bit in there where she talks about how mother in the court was keening 
I just think she always chooses the right words. It's fantastic. That second half of the story, she sort of, she's more present, like she comes into the courtroom almost for the um, plea hearing. Yep. And I think that's a really effective way that, okay, now we're sort of not quite present tense, but she's there and then she's a witness to everything that's happening now, whereas previously she'd been searching through the court documents. Mm. And um, it's sort of a new perspective in the middle of the story. But yeah, again, she says, I've never much envied judges, but for Justice Lazary in this case, I felt no envy at all. What would follow if he persuaded, if he were persuaded by Dempsey, who was the counsel, Dempsey's eloquent plea to consider all Gwad's actions under the merciful shelter of infanticide. Imagine the screaming of the tabloids, weak judges, soft on crime. These refugees, they come here, they think they can get away with anything. And she's, she's brought us straight into, okay, here's what might happen if this woman, you know, if some mercy is shown on this woman given her situation. That is part of the real privilege of being inside a courtroom, I think, okay. is that yeah. you see these kind of dilemmas that are faced by people who work in the law that, yeah, essentially the judge in this case is faced with a person who's done something truly awful but who has lived a pretty terrible life. And I don't think the in New South Wales, this incident happened in Victoria. In New South Wales, um, infanticide, it's a very complicated law, but it is interesting to acknowledge that the law in most states of Australia acknowledges that the first year, and it varies state to state, but the first year of um, a child's life can be particularly particularly difficult and can bring on mental illness and um, sometimes even psychosis in a mother. Yeah, that's factored into the the legalities and the sentence potential sentencing and yeah. We've delved deep into this and it's been heavy going, but um, how do your students handle this stuff? I mean, it's it's heavy going. I, I don't think I would have coped very well as a 21-year-old. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I did sort of think as, I, as we were talking about it in class, oh, have I done the right thing here? <laughs> have I traumatized people? But actually it sparked a really great discussion about... Mm-hmm the women in the class were kind of talking about, yeah, the pressures on women and their views on motherhood. Um, And a lot of the men that I'm teaching actually want to do sports journalism. So this was something that they had never read, never considered, and not all of them liked it. That's fine, but all of them had something to say about it and all Mm. of them could see that, yeah, this was a really classic example of good long-form writing. I think it's a tremendous piece, but it's going to spark emotions in, inside you no matter no matter what you think of it because it's just it's such a harrowing story. Yeah, yeah. And she's captured it so well, hasn't she? I mean, it's she, spectacularly yeah. written. Yeah, um, it's just beautiful. And, um, and I think <laughs> it takes a lot, I think, for any writer to try and humanize or put something like this into context and to kind of do their best to explain what happened so and that's kind of a journalist's role so yeah I, th- I think it was a good piece to show them um it was the first piece that I showed <laughs> them so um it, they were quite receptive and it did spark a lot of conversation it was yeah good. nice if we look at the finish of this piece 
Again, Ghana brings herself into it. She's talking about, on the train one morning, I struck up a conversation with a thoughtful-looking VCE student who was carrying a, a copy of Euripides' Medea, uh, which I've since discovered uh, involves a mother who kills her two children. Yeah. I asked her what she made of the famous play. She reeled off the things that students are taught to say about it. I wanted to know if she shared my anxiety. I said she did a terrible, terrible thing but she was very badly treated. She was betrayed. She was, the girl flushed and leaned forward. She put out both hands to me, palms up and whispered, but she was a mother. And, and she, she says, I had no reply. I was troubled and I still am by the finality of the word mother, this great thundering archetype with the power to stop the intellect in its tracks. And then uh, she quotes, the Herculean task of being a mother has now fallen to Akoi, who was the youngest uh, the oldest daughter of mm. um, the Sudanese mother. And then she says, to finish the story, she, she ends with a question, in the shadow of this ancient duty so implacable and profound, can mercy hold up its head? Yeah, I mean, it finishes with a question, which I guess we can interpret in a couple of ways. Should, should or could the mother have shown mercy to her children? And could or should the justice system have shown mercy to the mother? And also, I also think that question is a little bit about what I've spoken about before, which is seeing this woman as a person, Mm -hmm. giving her some mercy, perhaps not in the um, sense of the law, but just in the sense that she is a person. Mm -hmm. (laughs) She's more than just because you're a mother doesn't mean, I don't know, I think our culture and our society kind of gives mother's angels wings as soon as they have a baby and it's just an unrealistic it's just unreal yeah it's an unrealistic expectation and I think that that's more what she's talking about there it's more just can we see this woman for all that she's been through and show her or or see her as a person I suppose Mm. Yeah, yeah it's, it's a tough one and it's a devastating one, isn't it? I mean, yeah. three little kids died and and that's the top of the story and and then she uses the rest of the story to to explain how it got to that point, mm. um, which, again, is sort of going back to answering the question, which she, which she finishes with. And, and you talk about, you talked about at the top about driving a narrative with a question. Yeah. Um, and she's done it pretty bloody well there (laughs) (laughs) she has she won a walkley for that so um obviously was thought to be very good by a lot of other people too (laughs) (laughs) and it's compelling stuff i mean it's five and a half thousand words um Mm. it's yeah it's a terrific read We'll, we'll put it in the show notes we'll put it up on twitter so people can have a look to finish off we ask all of our guests this one and it's something a little bit lighter dead or alive you can choose anyone you like who would you love to sit down with an interview and then then write a long form piece about <laughs> do you know i would love to sit down and talk to helen garner yeah she okay. is just my favorite writer and um i've been reading her since sort of late high school and all of her work has bookmarked parts <laughs> of my life at different times like, for example, she has a book called Joe Chinque's Consolation, um, which is about a, a man who was killed by his girlfriend in Canberra. And I was reading that while I was doing work experience at the Canberra Times. And so it really brought it alive for me. Like I could picture where everything was happening and 
kind of, it was deep in winter when I was there. So it was really grim and it just was so evocative. Um, and I just love her so much, but I think I'd be way too scared to actually write <laughs> anything about her because anything that I could produce would be complete garbage compared to <laughs> Helen Garner. <laughs> you know, she'd be uh, reading it carefully and picking it to pieces and yeah. getting on the phone and uh, you could make that one happen though. That's, uh, that's not too far out of the realms. At least she's alive, right? It, yeah. The, the, the dream remains. Would you like to talk to her about her life or would you like to talk to her about writing and how do I become as good as you? I would just, I would love to talk to her about writing and about some of the things that maybe she hasn't been able to include in um, her books and her work. Um, and the great thing about Helen Garner, I've seen her speak a few times at events, is she's really down to earth and really funny. And I just think she would just make the most amazing dinner guest interviewee. <laughs> you know, it would be amazing. Yeah. Do you think she would find ways for optimism about the journalism world as we know it right now? And do you think she would be encouraging of young writers? I think she would be very encouraging of young writers. I listened to an interview with her kind of recently where she was talking about teaching students herself um, and that um, she was really taken aback by a lot of students sort of saying like oh but whose permission do I need to write this story um am I allowed to write this story and her advice was just kind of like just do it just Just get it out there just write she's just a treasure (laughs) oh that's (laughs) terrific well Steph thank you so much for coming on the show it's been a pleasure having you on Um, and thanks for uh going through those stories with us and uh hopefully your students enjoyed them I enjoyed going through them with you so Uh, Yeah, we really appreciate having you on the Writer's Hour. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.